On this episode of World of CONCACAF, we're headed south of the border to Mexico. Welcome to the World of CONCACAF podcast. I'm Eric Schmitz. I'm Jonathan Sleep. And I'm Donald Wine. And we are here to talk about Mexico. Um, thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. We've got an exciting conversation with John Arnold later in the show. Um, do you want to take a, time, a moment to shout out all of our patrons on our Patreon? Uh, we... Our set up a Patreon. We've got some bonus content on there. It's patreon.com slash podcacaf. Uh, Donald, I believe we have some new patrons since our last episode. We do. Uh, two of my really, really good friends, two of my best people, Susanna Banuez and Marcella Hilly. Thank you both for being patrons. I know we, we had to win you over, and I'm glad <laughs> we did. DC is in the building. All my people, <laughs> we're all in here. Donald, you did a great job selling. We appreciate the support. Thanks for signing up. Um, now, since they are patrons, they get to enjoy all of our bonus content, including our One More Round podcast, which is up going to be up on the Patreon by the time you are listening to this. So go check that out. Um, but yeah, so I just want to do a little housekeeping here. Uh, in the past, we've tried to cram a lot of stuff into these episodes, and we got some feedback. And everyone's telling us that these things are too long. So we're going to try splitting this up. We're really going to focus on the laser focus today. We're going to talk about Mexico and we're going to try to keep most of the conversation on that. Um, So we'll just get right into it. The CONCACAF laser focus this week is Mexico. Donald, uh, give us a little bit background on the country. Yeah, well, first off, I, I because we're all Americans, I need you to understand that most people out there probably don't know the official name of Mexico. I don't. Do you guys know? I do not. I thought it was Mexico. So, it is part of it, but the actual full name is the Estados Unidos Mexicanos, which is the United Mexican States, which is funny because we have the United Mexican States underneath the United States of America. We'll, we'll, we'll get into the number of states that they have compared to the United States in a little mm-hmm. bit, but uh, they have roots here dating back to 8,000 BC. I mean, we're going back. The indigenous people, mainly the Mayans and the Aztecs, were the civilizations among a couple others that discovered Mexico. And for centuries, they remained there unbothered until the Spanish Empire colonized the region beginning in 1521. They established their base as Mexico City and really took to spreading the Mexico borders north and west all the way to the Pacific Ocean. However, over time, the Mexican people developed their own identity that kind of combined the European elements of Spain, as well as the indigenous elements of some of the Mesoamerican civilizations that had discovered Mexico. And that led to them creating their identity. And they said, you know what, Spain, y'all got to go. They had a whole war about this. The the, the Mexican War for Independence 
lasted from 1810 to 1821. And then they finally won their independence. September 16th, 1821 is Mexican. Uh, September 16th is Mexican Independence Day. It's a very big deal for Mexican people to celebrate on that day. Of course, that was not the only war that they were involved in. There was a couple other wars that they were involved in. Uh, most of them cost them some of their territory. First, there was the Texas Revolution, where Texas gained their independence and became the Republic of Texas before later joining the United States. And then there was the, the Mexican-American War. And that was, again, a war in 1848, and it led to a lot of what is now the United States to form because of the fact that it used to be all Mexico. After Louisiana purchased, basically the entire western part of the United States was under Mexican control until the result of that war, and then they became part of the United States. So really quickly, obviously, there's another war that we won't really touch on as much, but the current war that they're in, unfortunately, is the war on drugs. And that has been one that they've been fighting to this day. It has bled a little bit into soccer. Um, I don't think we're going to touch a, a lot on that, but everyone is very aware of how that has kind of bled into the soccer world and just the sports world in general. So I think it's, it's worth it to make note of that part. Um, I mentioned that Mexico is the United Mexican States. There are 32 of them, including the Federal District of Mexico City. It is the largest Spanish-speaking country in the world, 126 million people. The capital, of course, Mexico City, which is one of the largest cities in the entire world. And one of the things that's interesting about Mexico is has the most UNESCO heritage sites in the Americas. And, of course, is one of the, most, uh, the biggest and most important economic powers in the Americas. So that's a little bit on the history of, of Mexico. And I also started to bleed into our next topic, the country and the culture. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll just go ahead and ask. We've been, we've all been there, right? Yep. Yep. Several, Several times. times. Several times. Okay. So Jonathan, I, we all, we've all had different experiences there. Um, talk a little bit about the culture and then we'll kind of like go, go into what, what we experienced there. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest things is, you know, when we've talked about a lot of these islands, uh, in these smaller nations, um, the cu- the culture of it as itself can be a little uh, homogenic, uh, like because like it, it like it's something so small, there's not going to be a lot of variation. Um, but just with the size of Mexico, so much of it is, you know, is different from um, b- because just because of the size, the the culture is going is going to vary through throughout the country. Um, Really, as a whole, I mean, from the cultural perspective, you know, with Mexico having been conquered by by the Spaniards, of course, there is going to be a lot of influence um, from Spanish culture as a whole. Of course, from the religious aspect, it is a deeply, um, I would say, religious country uh, based in Roman Roman Catholicism. Um, And one of the things you'll find as you go throughout Mexico, you know, Donald touched on those um, UNESCO uh, World Heritage Sites is you know, how old some of the culture is as far as like it has been around for thousands of years. There is so much that's rooted in both Mayan, Aztec, um, you know, the pre-Mayan period or pre-Aztec periods as well um, that is just kind of on display throughout um, the rest of, you know, throughout the country. Um, and yet I think one of the things, of course, you know, 
being by co having being on two coasts of course there's a lot of you know culture based around the water and and i think probably most people if they've been to mexico a lot of people have been to either um from a tourism aspect they've been to you know uh cancun they've been to um you know on the west coast baja and those areas and so i mean it really like it is a it's hard to boil down the culture into just one you know area yeah now let me ask you jonathan what parts of mexico had you have you been to so i've been to both mexico city and um more of the uh east coast so like playa del carmen tulum um went to uh chichen itza as well so uh you know those are i've been middle of the country and then of course um on the east coast what about you guys so I've been all over the place. I actually did a study abroad in eighth grade in Cuernavaca, which is about 45 minutes south of Mexico City. I've obviously visited Mexico City several times. Um, Acapulco, Cancun, Cozumel, Playa del Carmen, Costa Maya. And I also, from Big Bend National Park, I have literally crossed the Rio Grande into Mexico, into the you know desert that's right up there. So uh, I've been all over the place. And I think, Jonathan, you touched on a lot of what I was going to say, mainly each of these states have their own different cultures within themselves. Uh, it's kind of like the United States, right? Like, you know, Tennessee, where you guys are, is very different from Washington, D.C., where I live. And it's just because over time, you guys have different things that you guys do that we don't and vice versa. And, you know, they have different regions. Their food is great. And the food changes from region to region. You know, so even when you have different tacos or different enchiladas or anything like that, it's made differently in different parts of the country. And they also pride themselves on different things, Al Pastor versus, you know, Teresa or whatever, um, even those little intricacies. And I will say, while tequila and mezcal have a distinct way of being made, even that has distinct characteristics from place to place. Yeah. And it is interesting, like how diverse, diverse it really is when it's such a spread out country. Now, I've only been to Tijuana. My experience in Mexico goes like this. So this would have been 2017, U.S. held January camp out in San Diego. I flew in to San Diego early enough that we were able to drive down. Well, we drove down from San Diego down to the border, walked across the U.S.-Mexico border, got in a cab and went to a Jolos game. They, I believe it was Cruz Azul they played. I, I plan on going in a few weeks. Uh, we're going to visit our friends, Mark and uh, Vishal out there. And uh, I'm, we're going to go to a game um, in TJ. But so I'll be able to cross TJ off the list. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, like for me, I mean, I don't want to get into the politics and the geopolitical stuff at all. But you hear a lot of things about the southern border. And it really is kind of eye opening to like actually see it and kind of have your own opinion on it like you hop off it there was like a mcdonald's or something right there got dropped off walk through customs that get to the other side and it is different and you go you cab driver sitting there and you just hop in a cab and go but so outside of that night i really haven't had much experience in mexico i'm looking forward to exploring more um as we intend to do in mexico city uh, for this upcoming qualifier, but yeah, it's, it seems like a country where there are various destinations you can go and get a 
vastly different experience in any of them. So Eric, I know you're not going to be there long enough to actually do all of these things, right? But I mean, as you've been to TJ, so you've been honestly to a region of the country that, you know, Jonathan and I haven't. So you can, you'll know immediately what's different and what's not about it. But like the so many things that Mexico does great art, food, theater, literature, architecture, just has so many different elements to it. And I hope you get to experience uh, you know, besides the soccer, obviously, and the and the and the the food aspect, if you're able to get out to some of the museums uh, or just walk around the town and just kind of look at the architecture and how it changes from neighborhood to neighborhood, it's really fascinating. And I think they do it. It's very unique how Mexico does it compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, looking at I think Mexico City, you'll, you'll get a good. Yeah, like Donald said, you're really going to know the the differences between the two. Um, and then, like, yeah, talking about the food. We, I think anyone that's listening to this knows that how much all three of us love food um, and, and just the, you know, so like a lot of the native, you know, foods indigenous to Mexico, of course, like corn, pepper, vegetables, um, avocado, sweet potato, you know, beans. And then like, you know, the pork, the Spaniards, they really introduced a lot of that pork, beef, um, chicken. Um, of course, if you can get any, you know, al pastor. Um, anything with, of course, with uh, mole as well. Um, and one of my Mole's favorite things. Yeah, it is, it is absolutely terrific. And then like there's actually there's a place in Nashville that does this is um, they make tortillas. It's called the nixtamalization of corn. It's like the traditional like pre-Columbian, you know, they build they they make it with like basically a mortar and a pestle um, and just the the tortillas that it is produces are just absolutely incredible. Yeah. And now let me, let me ask you guys, um, what is the best thing that you've had in Mexico? Like what's the best meal you've had in your trips? Um, best. in Mexico, it's probably just like, honestly, is it's mainly the tacos, just different taco joints all over the, all over the place. Like, and again, and tacos are different in, in different regions, but I will say like people who have never been to Mexico and think that they have a grasp of Mexican food by going to Tex-Mex restaurants, you will learn that there's a lot of things, a lot of added flavors and elements that do not make it to the Tex-Mex like fusion that we as Americans have kind of created. Uh, Don't get me wrong. Tex-Mex is is outstanding, but some of the things that you are used to are made differently in Mexico. And for some reason they just hit differently in Mexico. It just is so very simple, right? Like just the, you know, taco with the protein, you know, cilantro, onions, and some hot and some sort of salsa. It's it's just perfect. It it, it makes for something where you can eat quite a bit. In in Mexico City, we are going to have our fair share of tacos, Eric. Like, don't you worry. Um, they are they are all fantastic. Um, but there's just so many other foods there that you can try. Uh, and so many and again, mezcal, te- te- tequila. You're not sitting there drinking margaritas and in and downing them and getting hammered like you would at your normal restaurant in the United States. These are sipping tequilas. They're sipping mezcals where you just kind of sit, have a drink and observe life pass you by. And it's fantastic. Yeah, I, I would say like there's there's a specific. I mean, I ate the last time I was in Mexico City. I ate so many great tacos, but I we went to a place called El Mayor that's in Mexico City. It is right off the Zocalo, like right off the, the main city square. And you have. A, it's a rooftop. You have this fantastic view into, you know, some Aztec ruins. Um, and just the food was not only was 
you know, the different types of tacos that we had, um, you know, some of the some of the seafood. Um, but we had uh, mezcalenas, which was um, mezcal and passion fruit juice and just the beautiful um, mixture of the smokiness of the mezcal mixed with the sweet of the passion fruit. Um, I'd still dream about the, that, that beverage um, many, many years later. That sounds delightful. Um, yeah, I'm very excited to get like the authenticness, like very excited about the trip. But so we've talked about Mexico. I think we need to do, we do need to talk about the soccer just a little bit, you know, this is kind of a soccer centric podcast. Um, so soccer in Mexico, and we've touched on some of this previously here, um, about the way the culture has kind of grown from the Spanish, you know, the Spanish influence and the wars fought, like there was, it's not necessarily a country that like had like soccer wasn't invented there. It was brought there. And I found a really interesting note. Uh, in the Wikipedia article for football of Mexico says it is believed that football was introduced to Mexico by emigrant miners from Cornwall, England at the end of the 19th century. In the early 1900s, football was used as a method to quote, indoctrinate modern labor practices, such as teamwork and competition within a set of rules upon the unskilled Mexican workers. So you almost have this culture around the game where it's part of like the imperialism of the previous generations and soccer is a very central thing. It's the biggest sport in Mexico. Um, and it's got a lot of history and a lot of cultural resonance. Um, I will say Eric with regards to that, I just want to mention, I know we didn't touch on it and we're going to get back to soccer, but I did want to mention that just the sports culture in Mexico is very unique and just, outstanding as well in addition to soccer soccer is far and away like far and away the biggest sport but they have a lot of sports that they really do love and enjoy baseball lucha libre wrestling bullfighting basketball and boxing boxing has become you know a one of those mega sports as well down there but it all reverts back to the passion and the and the culture that was created through the soccer yeah i will say that the last thing before we get back to the soccer they when i was in mexico city uh the main like lucha libre um organization they were it was like their one off week over the summer and so i unfortunately was not able to attend but that is like you know high up on the next time i make it over to uh, to go i i went in 2013 with a bunch of aodc people we are also going on this trip uh to a lucha libre show uh unfortunately you guys i don't don't know if you're not getting in until the night before party for ao then you're going to miss it, but they do have them on Tuesdays and Fridays. Um, they just restarted them due to COVID uh, or at least letting fans back in. So um, yeah, we're getting to go to a show, which I cannot wait for. I got my Lucha Libre mask from 2013 ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I'm going to miss that. Miss out on that. But yeah, like even going back to the cuisine, like the sports, it's a diverse regionalized thing, but soccer is the most pervasive. Um, they've got a pretty developed league system uh at the top you've got liga mx or liga mx i i don't know which one i'm supposed to say because i don't quite know 
how I'm supposed to pronounce it, but that's like the premier division. That is the top first tier of Mexican soccer. Their season is split into two seasons. They do the Apertura and the Clausura, uh, spring season and the fall season. Each year is those two tournaments. Um, They actually just went through kind of an overhaul. Uh, The Mexican Football Federation developed this financial stability plan, tried to like make these leagues a little more well, stable. Um, They took the second division, uh, the former Ascenso MX, and turned that into the Liga de Expansion MX. Um, There is Pro-Rel in the, like the game plan for those leagues. Uh, But due to the pandemic, they've actually decided that there won't be any promotion or relegation for the next five years. So you got Liga MX on top. You've got Liga de Expansion below that. Underneath that is Liga Premier, uh, which was third tier. That's actually two divisions in one. And then the fourth tier is Liga TDP, which is 17 groups with over 200 teams across the country. So like there's this huge pyramid, which pyramid Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I will say for, I will say for the, uh, on the pro rail side, they actually were having plans to do it um, or to, to eliminate it basically for five years. And the reason why is they were, they're looking kind of at a model uh, of how a closed model system or closed league system would work a la major league soccer. And obviously, as you know, with the collaborations that they've had between MLS and league MX, they've been trying to see how that would work uh, on the Mexican side. I think what exacerbated it was COVID starting as they were implementing plans for this to happen, for this to work. They wanted to build up to 20 teams and they end up having to cut a couple because they weren't able to make it uh, uh, through COVID or, or I guess they end up moving a team to make it, you know, uh, make it work. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a still in progress transformation of major professional soccer in Mexico. Um, But the, this, the palace of Mexican soccer is the Estadio Azteca. In Mexico City, Estadio Azteca is the big main stadium. It is the home of the national team. It is home of two Liga MX teams, Club America and Cruz Azul. Uh, opened in 1966, it was host of the 1970 World Cup Final, the 1986 World Cup Final, and it will be hosting games in the 2026 World Cup set to be hosted throughout North America. Uh, It is also the site of Maradona's goal of the century and hand of God goal, like two legendary soccer moments, which were the same game, which were in the same exact game in the 1986 world cup, which is mind blowing. If you think about it, it's like two iconic goals happening, like in one 90 minute frame. Absolutely absurd. Current capacity is 87,523, but it is, it was built and has staged many events with over a hundred thousand people. I know right now they're doing reduced capacity through COVID through suspensions and disciplinary reasons. Uh, They're doing reduced capacities, but is one of the largest stadiums in on the continent. Um, Also quick trivia. Do you know who the first sold-out concert was at Estadio Azteca? We got a guess. Menudo? What'd you say? Menudo? 
Did you read the article? No, I didn't. That was just oh, that was well, legitimately you're right. You're right. Nice that was me. legitimately a guess. <laughs> exactly who you would have guessed. No. So Estadio Azteca, host of numerous major events, some NFL games, uh, some major boxing matches. I know you've already referenced that boxing's huge down there. Um, but yeah, also home to a sold out Menudo concert in 1983. Um so Aztec, the stadium, and Donald, you've been there. Do you want to – also, Jonathan, you've been there as well. I'm the only one of us that hasn't. What are your – what's the stadium like? It is just a absolute, like, opposing – like, imposing figure um, of the area. Like, it is incredibly big um, as a stadium, and – you know, you get in there, and and so you know, Donald, and you've never been for anything other than a U.S. game, have you? Uh, that's correct. Two two U.S. games, two U.S. games, and, I, and I've been just one. So, like, I mean, you come in, and like, you where you're sitting is, at least where they put the away fans. I mean, is up in like up in the stratosphere. Like, you are way up there. The even the stands that are up there have this massive pitch to them. So, like. You know, standing at the back of the section, like toward the top, like I mean, it's a pretty like it's a pretty sharp angle. Um, looking for it, and it is just a incredible um mass of uh mass of things, mass of like people of of concrete of seats. Um, it is just it's a pretty incredible uh, stadium. It's just, it's simply a bucket list stadium. It, it really is a, of the stadiums in the on the entire planet. If you're a sports fan of any kind, you should get to Estadio Azteca to see a game there. And of course, you know, Eric, you're going to get to cross off with the biggest game that possibly goes in there short of a world cup final that they've hosted a couple of times. But I will add that not only is it tall, I mean, Mexico city itself sits about 7,800 feet above sea level. So the idea is putting the, putting the away fans at the upper part of the stadium, you have to climb up like several ramps to get to your section and then you have to climb into your section and then climb down and then climb back up you are gassed before you even get to your seat and that's by design they want you to be gassed so that you can't spend your time cheering you know all all given all your energy for your team because you have to catch your breath it is it, it's one of those it's one of the most intimidating home field advantages on the face of the planet and mexico for decades has used it to their advantage yeah and they've used it their advantage as it is their national stadium. It's pretty much like I know in the U.S. the national team will play all over the place. In Mexico, if there's a big game, it's Estadio Azteca. That's where they're playing. And I'm really excited to see it. But speaking of those national teams, Donald, do you want to tell us a little bit about their women's national team and where they're at right now? Yeah, uh, it's funny. Their national team, we, we've talked about the women's national teams for several countries on this podcast. And we talk about how new they are. Well, this is one of the oldest women's national teams in the world. They actually started back in 1963 though. And they were doing games. They were competing in tournaments. They, they, there actually was an offshoot women's world cup that FIFA does not recognize in the late sixties, early seventies. And they placed third in that in 1970. They actually hosted it in 1971. They were officially recognized by FIFA in 1991 and have been obviously playing recognized FIFA events since then. Their biggest win 
was a 10-0 victory over Martinique back in October 2014. Their biggest defeat was in April 1991 to the United States of America, uh, 12 to nothing. I, I, you were going to guess it. I, I, was, I was pointing at you. You didn't guess it quickly enough. But yeah, so the United States beat them back in April 1991. They're currently ranked 27th in the world, but they've really just been in the 20s for the almost the entirety of their existence. Their lowest is 31, and they were there for like one month and then jumped back up into the 20s. They have qualified for three FIFA Women's World Cups, 1999, 2011, and 2015. And they've also participated at seven CONCACAF Women's Championships. They finished second in 1998 and in 2010. The thing about Mexico's women's team is unlike their men, they live primarily in the shadow of the United States and Canada in the women's game. And after they didn't qualify for the 2019 World Cup, they actually went on a downward spiral for a year or so. But what they did was they took the money that they had, you know, were gaining hand over fist from the men's team, and they reinvested it in the women. And I think they did great at doing that. They, they formed a domestic league. They pumped resources into strengthening the national team and getting them in front of high-quality competition. You'll see some Mexican players play in MWSL and abroad, also in the Liga MX Femenil. They have done a really good job at doing that. And as a result, they are probably the third best team in CONCACAF. And they are poised to possibly qualify for the 2023 World Cup and have a shot at the 2024 Olympics. They have to finish qualifying this month or in April and then this summer at the W Championship. But this is a team that's not necessarily on the rise. They're, they've always been there and they're just looking for the perfect time to strike and that perfect time for them maybe right now. Well, they're hosting that W Championship as well. Exactly. Um, that'll be taking place in Monterey this summer. So you wonder if the little home field advantage might do them some good. So a lot of opportunity for the women's national team. Uh, Jonathan, do you want to touch on the men's national team? Yeah, I mean, I'll touch on them. I mean, this is a, a national team that needs absolutely no introduction, I feel like, for, for any fan, uh, you know, fan in, in CONCACAF. I mean, they have for the longest time, you know, been seen as it as the gold standard long like long term of uh of CONCACAF soccer uh so you know currently so their current 12th in the FIFA rankings their highest ever they've been was fourth uh, and they've hit that the, a few different times um they are up until 2026 they will be the only CONCACAF nation that has hosted two world cups so they hosted both um you know the 1970 world cup and then of course the 1986 world cup they got that one based on the fact that, uh, you know, Colombia had originally been awarded the, the tournament. There was, um, you know, a few different issues around um, some of the uh, just unrest in the area. And as far as I think there were some natural disaster issues as well. Um, and then that you know, they ended up giving that to um, Mexico instead. So uh, they've hosted to their best finish uh, in a World Cup came in. Uh, in both of the World Cups that they hosted. So they finished the quarterfinals of, of 1970 and, and 1986. You know, looking at, you know, currently how, how it is, I mean, of course, they have a very fierce rivalry with the United States, and that goes from not just on the field, um, but, of course, from the dual national perspective as well. Um, we know that, you know, with the United States being a nation um, of immigrants, there's, of course, a lot of people that, you know, are both Mexican and American and, and they, you know, have to make a decision of, you know, what national team that they uh, are going to represent. So, I mean, some of the, you know, probably most famous dual nationals, of course, the guys like Carlos Bocanegra, 
uh, Omar Gonzalez, Hercules Gomez, uh, and then even recently um, looking at someone like Ricardo Pepe, who who chose uh, and then chose the United States, and then Julian Araujo and Efren Alvarez, who chose Mexico. So, I mean, that's really that's kind of a brief overview, um, but I feel most people are familiar um, with the Mexican national team. Yeah, and I do feel like we might get to a point as development in the United States continues to grow and the, the Mexican-American population gets more opportunity to develop that we might down the road see a Mexican national team with even more U.S. players than just one or two depth guys. Like you might eventually see star players who grew up in the U.S. and now they're representing Mexico, which is going to be a very interesting dynamic considering the rivalry. All right. So thanks for the info on the national teams. Um, We're going to bring in an expert here to talk more about Mexico. Um, We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get a bucket. We're going to bring in the let's get a bucket segment and talk to old friend of the show, John Arnold, about Mexico, soccer and El Tree. We'll be right back. We are back, and we are very fortunate to have a guest back on the show. Um, John Arnold uh, joined us last year, and he is back to talk more CONCACAF and talk to us about Mexico. John, how are you doing today? I'm good. It's great to be a returning champion on World of CONCACAF. And I, if I'm not mistaken, the last time I was here, I was talking about Anguilla, which uh-huh. is the worst-ranked team in CONCACAF. So I'm happy to be here to talk about the best-ranked teams. I, I mean... I don't feel like I'm a bookends type guy, but I guess uh, we're, we're covering the full spectrum. Oh yeah. Also, also when you when you talk to Grant, I know there's there's a bit of a, a brewing war about the uh, the the real team fake team uh, <laughs> game that you guys have done. But you are the first oh, yeah. two time returnee. Like you're the first time that, to come back to the show. So you're gonna have to tell Grant he's got to come back. That's too. the tiebreaker. But you could always say well, you're the first one to be all second. Right, all right. All right. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. He'll never he'll never be. I'll never be the first like I was. So. It's first. good to be here, guys. Glad to chop it up. And of course, uh, I think my love of the CONCACAF region is well known. So um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, you're the expert here. So so this episode, we're focusing on Mexico. And there's a lot about Mexico. And Mexico is a big soccer country. You're very familiar with Mexico. What is it about soccer in Mexico that makes it so culturally important? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. It's a good question. Um, I think, first of all, like, you know, people haven't followed my work or don't know me a little bit. Um, sometimes I can come off wrong. You know, I was really careful in the in the aftermath of the Queretaro the violence brawl situation to sort of like put my credentials out there. You know, I lived in Mexico. I've covered the, the league and the national team for around a decade now, which makes me sound 
old and maybe I am, but uh, you know, this is a, a country that I'm familiar with that I lived in uh, and that I've followed from a football standpoint for, for even longer than I've been writing about it. You know, my story, like a lot of people's, I think, you know, in the U S was based on access. And, and for me growing up, we had broadcast TV and the only soccer you were getting on the weekend was Univision. And so, you know, grew up watching some of these teams, but I think that that story is, is, is more pertinent for Mexican-Americans, for Mexicans, where you just grow up every weekend watching your team with your pops, with, with your grandpa, with your mom, whoever it is that has that love of football. And I think that's where it starts. And of course, you know, the participation is, is quite large in Mexico. You see um, everyone playing. When you go to Mexico, you see people play. And you know, like, I think it's easy to have this picture of like dusty Mexico, people playing in the streets or whatever, but like people are playing in very nice, Football rapido, like uh, futsal type places and these beautiful facilities, kind of public civic facilities. When I lived in Tijuana, where infrastructure is, <laughs> it's it's kind of all it's it's mishmash. There's still three or four places where it's just like, oh yeah, of course you go down there get a game and and uh, it's going to be a pretty high level. So you know, I think that that sort of combines to to make Mexico this football country. And then you have the history, right? Just the, the dominance they've had in the CONCACAF region, um, the connections they've had with South America, the desire to overcome, to reach the Quinto Partido in foreign soil. Uh, when you have that sort of continuous cycle, when the national team kind of pushes the story forward basically uh, every year, I think you, you have people really hanging on that. I do think the national team is an interesting moment. Maybe we'll get into this where I'm not so sure the support is as strong as it used to be. Um, I think the, some of the mystique of the Azteca is gone. You know, Hector Herrera himself mentioned that uh, a couple, couple windows ago. And I think that you, you see people caring less and less about the national team for various reasons um, that, that, like I said, we can get into, but that being said, whether or not the national team is as popular as it once was, it's still very clearly the most popular sports team in Mexico and one of the most popular sports teams in the U.S. So um, I think when it is that sort of common ground for so many people, that's how you get something that means something to a lot of people. You know, it, it's special to my friends. It's special to my mom, to my dad. It's special to me. And I think that's where the, the love of the national team comes from and the love of the game just from being passed down. It, it is heritage. You've been to a few League MX games, you know, just whether you're covering it as a fan, what have you. And I know when we talk about, you know, when American fans talk about soccer in Europe, they talk about how unique the game day atmosphere is, the experience. What uniqueness brings you to, or anyone to say that, hey, League MX has it that other leagues in this hemisphere don't and yeah. coinciding with that. You just talked about the national team and it's quote unquote waning popularity. Does that have something to do with it? Have people become a little bit more club over country in Mexico because of that, you know, the roots that league MX already has. Yeah, I, I think so. I think league MX is the popularity is, is, is enormous. And you have this sort of, you know, there's natural lines that are drawn, your Chivas or your America, and then there's the, the, the Clásicos within the cities, Clásico Regio between Tigres and Monterrey, kind of a friendlier rivalry historically, the Clásico Tapatio between Atlas and Chivas. You have all these kind of rivalries where even if you're not paying attention to the games, you're picking a side. You know, even if, even if you don't know who is the starting forward for Chivas, if you, you know, family grew up rooting for Chivas, you're going to say Chivas is better than Atlas, right? I think the, the game day experience is quite unique, but I think one thing that, that gets sort of missed and it's, it's, 
I'm not sure why is that it varies wildly from place to place. And that sounds very logical because so does the MLS game day experience, right? Like it's going to be totally different if you go to an Atlanta United game or a Philadelphia Union game or an LAFC game or a Seattle Sounders game. And, and, and why is it different? Well, because of cultural factors, you know, how popular is soccer in that region? And because of marketing, how much has the club done to try and bring people in? Because of the history, how good has the club been or how well have they been able to attract people to the stadium? How nice is the facility? How cheap are the tickets? You know, these are all these, these factors that, that make it quite different based on club. You know, I, I lived in Tijuana and so you saw this fascinating blend of the Mexican soccer culture with the American sports culture. You know, there's tailgating before the game. Literally people are driving their trucks across the border you know, from California, popping the tailgate down, having the, having the beers, grilling meat. In Monterrey, you have some of that culture, but a lot of it is watching the game at home. We do the carne asada. We, we have sort of a family environment. Stadium atmospheres are great there, don't get me wrong, but it, it is a different vibe than Tijuana, which is a different vibe from Mexico City, where you take the metro to the game and, and uh, <laughs> that light rail to the Azteca, which is like one of the worst uh, experiences in the world. I know some of us will be experiencing that here in a couple of days. Um, but everything else is pretty good public transportation wise. So I don't know. It's just like a different vibe in each of these, in, in each of these uh, markets in each of these stadiums. But I do think that like you see in the stadiums, like you see one of the, one of the real shames of the Careto incident is that I would say typically Liga Mekis is a big time family affair. And you see, even in that, in that incident, you saw kids, running onto the field for safety. You saw people protecting kids from, from different, you know, jokers that were doing the wrong thing, that were committing crimes, that were committing active violence, that were being disgusting uh, individuals and, and that, that should be in jail, right? So um, it, it, I think that also colors, unfortunately, the recentness of that as we're having this conversation uh, two or three weeks after that happened, like also colors the kind of like big picture narrative of like, Hey, what's it like to go to a Yamekis game? Because it's hard. It's hard to talk about after that, because it's like, you know, you've seen, I I've seen, I've been in stadiums before I've, I've reported on, you know, Hey, there's, there's been, there's a little skirmish between barras between these organized groups, but for the most part, it doesn't get to that. And you see hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of people with their families, with their kids. And so I think that's the typical atmosphere of Mexico. That's a typical atmosphere of Liga Mekis game is everyone's there, everyone's having fun, but then you see these, these moments where, where that's clearly not the case. And so, um, yeah, I, I guess like, I, I don't know. I don't know if that helps get a picture, but I think it, like in some ways it's everything. And in some ways it's, you know, certain, certain things make it just a little different. It's certainly different from an MLS game. It's certainly different from going to a game in Argentina or, or other places in South America. And it's way different from going to a game in Europe. It definitely has its own unique character. And I think part of it is the family vibe, um, but part of it also is the, the kind of intenseness and passion that does exist that we saw unfortunately spill over into something quite different yeah now do you obviously that incident garnered a lot of attention and if you had social media you were aware of what was going on almost live while it was happening do you feel like that's it's almost gonna be a tipping point has this been like a building issue or do you are we going to see this going forward I think that you're already seeing some of the clubs kind of clean. You know, we all have those spaces in our house where we're not proud. You know, that, that corner of a closet where you're like, ah, you know, I actually have my moving boxes there, even though I've lived here for three years or whatever. Maybe that's a crass analogy, but I think it's the same where like some of these clubs are starting to be like, you know what? We do have 
that dark corner. And it doesn't have to be barras. It doesn't have to be organized fans. I've seen, you know, clubs say like, oh, we need to make the stadium more wheelchair accessible. We've kind of been like overlooking that. Like this hasn't been something that we've taken seriously. We need to do that, right? I've seen clubs say like, we've been lax with our ticketing policies, the way it works. And I do think you're going to see a revolution when you combine what the Federation is trying to do to combat the homophobic chance with this new incident, um, this unfortunate recent incidents of violence, I think you're going to see a fan ID program that's like countrywide, um, where you're going to have to have some sort of barcode or identifier to scan before you go into almost every game. That, pro- that type of uh, program was already in place for Mexico's last qualifiers, where 2,000 people were uh, in attendance. That type of program has been in place in uh, Jalisco for the, the Clásico already. So we're seeing that more and more. And I really do think that you're going to see more, um, I don't even know what you'd call it, like digital policing in a way, or just like tracking to make sure that when fans do the wrong things and they get kicked out, that you can actually enforce these bans. Because look, like, <laughs> I mean, it's tough. If you say, oh, well, the fans should be banned from stadium for life. I agree yeah. with you. How do you enforce that, right? If, I'm, if, I, if a Caretero fan who was part of that, that, that brawl shows up at, atlas in two years and they buy a ticket and they walk through like i don't think they're going to have a you know a list of all the guys or you know everybody's face on the corner it's a difficult thing to enforce unless you have some sort of technology so i think the tipping point is there that i think the league and and the federation as well for national team games it's getting smarter about these things this is already part of the idea again that you know if a fan yells the bad word they are kicked out they are banned for I think it's four or five years. I can't remember. I wrote it, but I think it's five years. Five years. How, yeah. how do you enforce that ban? Well, you need some sort of identifier. So um, that's what you have now. And I think that's the change that you see in Mexican soccer is, is that, is it enough? Does it, does, I think it goes in the right direction. I think you could do more, uh, but it's also easy for me to say that sitting here, you know, um, but look like <laughs> if you don't start to pay attention to to barras, to, to fights, to violence around the game. And I think, you know, I wrote in my newsletter, like even, even deeper into society in a way, this kind of organized uh, ultra violence that you see, unfortunately with organized crime, with, with drug trafficking, with these, these different situations. Like if you don't sort of accept that as a reality and something that could happen, like you will see more of these incidents. So it's on the leaders now. I mean, it's on Yonde Luisa, the Federation president, who I think has acted well. It's on Mikel Arriola, the league president. And the Liga Mekis is such a sort of uh, confederated league or such a split up league where the club owners have so much power. And so it's on them as well. If you have this responsibility to be a club owner, um, then you need to take the responsibility when something terrible happens. And also make sure that something doesn't happen, that these dark areas that you have in your closet are clean when you put the light on them. You know, it, it needs to, uh, like, I, I don't feel like I need to give a condemnation for what happened because obviously yeah. everyone condemns that. If you're human, sure. you see that, you're like, what, this is, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yes, you know, this is terrible. So, I mean, look, like, but I think it does have to be, and I, and I as a journalist, like, what I try to do, even from abroad, from a foreign perspective, is like, is put the blame in the right place and say, look, like obviously the people committing these actions are the ones responsible for the actions, but it, it, it happened in this environment that was fostered by those who are in charge. So I'm going to be watching closely um, what the response continues to be. Uh, the initial response, I think it's okay. I would have gone farther if I were in charge, but let's see kind of how it goes. But also yeah. you can't take a let's see how it goes approach 
if people's lives are in stake. So you have to make sure it's a safe environment. You have to not lose that family feel because if you lose that, you've lost some of the solo mix in soccer. So we'll see. Real quickly, I, I know I, we're not going to get into all of the things that have come down as far as punishments or sanctions or things like that. But one thing I thought was curious was the banishment of away fans from league MX games for, I think it's for a year or for the rest of the season, at least. Uh, and they'll reevaluate at the end of the season. Do you think that's going to change how, I mean, obviously there's a lot that's going to change going forward, but do you think that fundamental thing is going to change the uniqueness of the passion and the intensity that comes from some of these games? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think it's, it's necessary now and, and breaking up these barras, you know, look like it's tough because like there's people in the, in the barras who just feel like that's their identity that want to support their club, but there's also a legitimate element in a lot of them. That's, 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 not good. <laughs> so, I mean, I think they're on the way to being banned completely, these groups, although that wasn't the step that was taken in the immediate aftermath. They're on that path. And I think it gets done. And so, you know, it, it be, then becomes a question of how organized is organized support? Is traveling support always organized supporters groups, right? Like, but I, I don't think, I don't think with these measures right now, Mexican soccer risks losing that identity. You know, I think the bigger threat, which the owners and, and, and administrators have correctly identified is like, it is an existential threat if something like this happens again, especially in the near future, because who would take their kid to the game if they think, yeah, you might have to run for your life. I mean, it just, yeah. you know, so, um, but I think the traveling, the banning, banning of the traveling support, I think, you know, I do think it's going to be temporary, but I think it, how these groups are organized will fundamentally change, hopefully for the better in the next few months. Yeah. Now we're talking about fan support. Let's kind of move over towards the national team. Cause you mentioned that it's almost been sort of waning. Um, where do you think the program sits in the in the national consciousness right now? Yeah, it's at the top of the national consciousness. I think that it's easy to look at Mexico, especially as America's neighbor, and just be like, wow, they're so soccer obsessed. And it's true. And, you know, the things I've said leading up to this point in the podcast, I yeah. say and believe. Right. Yeah. But I do think it's. You know, I live in Dallas, Fort Worth, and like culturally, everyone's a Cowboys fan, right? Everyone just roots for the Cowboys. But do people really know how their defense is playing? Maybe, maybe not, right? Do they know what the schemes are? Maybe, maybe not. I'm not gatekeeping. I'm not saying you can't be a fan if you don't have those things. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. If you root for the team, you root for the team. That's cool. Support in your own way. But I think like that's the case with the Mexico national team. And I don't think they've done a great job as new modes of entertainment have become available as you can stream whatever show you want to watch. You know, it is a huge deal. The games are on both Televisa and Azteca, this war, quote unquote, and that's a poor choice of words, this, this ratings competition between these two um, networks is like front page news. Like it gets covered by all the, you know, every, every news outlet because um, it's just always fascinating. These two TV companies control so much of what happens, not only in Mexican sports, although they control a lot there, but even in Mexican life. But as you've seen that sort of uh, stratification happen, you, the loss of monoculture, uh, which has accelerated you know, everywhere in the world, but definitely in North America in the last decade, decade and a half, I think you see people become more and more detached from the national team. And you've also seen the national team detach themselves from the country you know, Mexico makes huge money and business-wise, it makes very, very much sense to play in the United States five times a year. But every time you play in Oakland or or Memphis or whatever, I guess Nashville and Orlando are places <laughs> they actually play, um, yeah. 
you know, like you don't play in Monterrey or Guadalajara. And I think that you lose that closeness with the national team, especially when there is a national stadium in Mexico City, which is 100% the biggest city, massive, massive population. And yet, when you look at the cities that are soccer cities in Mexico, Monterrey, I think, is number one. Guadalajara is probably number two. Yeah, they love soccer in Mexico City, but it doesn't have the same sort of like resonance that it does. And then that's not even getting into like, what about other like Leon? Leon's a soccer city. We know that the club is good. We see them all the time in CCL. National team doesn't play there. You could go down the list, right? There's, I mean, Tijuana, they never play in Tijuana, but they could, but they don't, right? And so I think it, it becomes like this sort of like, if they don't care about my city, if they don't care about me, why would I care about them? And there's also the frustration of what happens on the field, right? There is this mentality that Mexico should just be number one, should llegar caminando, should, should walk to the World Cup. And that's not really the reality anymore in CONCACAF, not just because of what the United States is doing, but because of what Costa Rica and El Salvador and Panama are doing, right? And what other countries are doing, even in the, in the Nations League, you know, I think a decade ago, Mexico really does smash uh, Bermuda when they play in the Nations League. That's not necessarily the case anymore. Sometimes it happens, but a lot of times it doesn't. So I think there's a, fr a frustration from fans that they just feel like, hey, we should be smashing them. We should be better. And I think it's fair to say we should be better in qualification. We should be better against these top teams. But at the same time, you know, I, I think it leads to discontent. People are frustrated with the manager and people saying like, well, why would I watch this team? They suck. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. Like, it's weird because I do think, I think the bigger factor is the prices are high to get into the stadium, although not high from a U.S. standard but they are high to go see the national team and you have to be in one place to do it. And I think you lose that, that, that relationship that they've had for so long with the fan base. So I don't know what you do to repair that and, and look like the homophobic chant. I believe it's homophobic. First of all, I believe it should be eradicated. And I think that, you know, the Luisa and the Federation are doing good things to make that happen. But that's just, that's a, that's a split too, man. And not everyone agrees that it's a bad thing. Not everyone agrees with those statements, not because they want to sell yell homophobic things, but they, they don't view it as homophobic because of linguistic nuances, because of cultural mm. nuances. So I think even that is like a schism, right? And you just see these fractures with the Federation of the national team and the fan base. And look, it's still a beautiful love story. You still see, you know, when I was in Russia in 2018, Mexico fan base was the best one there by, by far the passion, the, the energy, the numbers, sheer numbers, you know, a lot, a lot of people went to support Mexico. People who didn't even go to games, didn't even have tickets to just wearing the national team shirt around, watching at the fan zones, having a beer. Huge, huge, huge numbers of fans. Like the Mexican fan is still amazing. And look, we see it in the U.S., right? When, when the U.S. plays Mexico, they have to do tricks to make it so it's not a big yeah. capacity Mexico crowd. People always joke, what if you put it in North Dakota? What if you put it in Alaska? People would it's, still show up, man. People yeah. would still show up. The passionate fan is still passionate. The fan base is still incredible, but I do think that when you talk about this sort of like big picture, there is this disconnect now. So I don't know. I don't know how you fix it. And maybe you don't, maybe this is international football from here on out, right? Like people are happy yeah. if your team is winning and they tune in, but otherwise they're not that connected. But yeah. Yeah. And I know we're running short on time, but I do just for where we're sitting right now. Um, you talk, you talked about how there's the pressure on, they notably have zero nations league titles. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a big, that's a big disconnect with the fan base as well. Everyone's like, we want the nation's league. <laughs> yeah. And they should, but they can't get it. They can't get it <laughs> someday. Maybe, maybe someday doubtful, but anyways, they have not locked up qualification yet 
things look very good for them based on their remaining schedule. But yeah. this upcoming game, crucial with the United States at home. The U.S. has won three big games against them. How much pressure is on Tata Martino and the Federation to mm. win a, win this game? It's interesting because I think that the pressure is there, but I don't know that it's changed from any previous meeting. You know, like I mentioned the Federation being more progressive, dealing with the homophobic chant, uh, you know, the way they work with the clubs. And I think you see it with the leadership as well, as far as Tata Martino's job status. He lost three official matches to the U.S. last year, two of them for trophies. But I don't feel like his job has ever been in that much of risk. Martino himself kind of, I think it's a motivational tactic, told his players after the, the loss in Canada that he would resign if they felt like they weren't going to be able to work with him. And they apparently backed him. This is all reports. You know, Tata's not coming out and saying that, but that's the story. Seems feasible to me and, and plausible. But I think the Federation has said Tata's our man. And he kind of has to be, right? Especially at this point. Because if you lose to the U.S., still probably can get to the World Cup, right? You got El Salvador at home. Bless their hearts. They've been really fun this cycle, but should beat them. You got a trip to the worst team in the, in the, in the, in the final round. So you should still be fine. And what, what are you going to achieve firing Martino after this game? The project has always been from minute one when Martino sits in the chair and, and is wearing Mexico national team gear and accepts the job to get to the fifth game of the World Cup. But it also makes it an extremely tight, like the pressure never goes away because it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you win the World if you win the Gold Cup and the Nations League and the qualification game against the U.S. and you have three victories against the U.S. instead of zero. You still have to win this game, get qualified, because you have to get out of the group and win a game at the World Cup. That's the standard in 2022 in a World Cup year, but it's also the standard in 2019 when you're like trying to build toward this thing that's happening years in the future, which is tough in soccer. So I think the pressure never goes away for Tata Martino. There is extra pressure because it's a rivalry game. There is extra pressure because Mexico's never lost a qualifier to the U.S. at the Azteca. They never lost a game to the U.S. at the Azteca. But... In a way, it's like a fish in the ocean. It doesn't know any different. The pressure is always surrounding you. So I think it's an important game. I'm writing in the newsletter right now. Um, Martino, just like, just like Greg Berhalter, has big decisions to make that I think could really decide whether or not they get three points in this game. You know, there's, there's, I know the U.S. has injuries. I know people are worried. Fair enough. Mexico does too. And they have suspension to Hector Herrera, which I think is really important. So that's, that's what the newsletter will focus, a little teaser there. Um, but yeah, I, I just think like there is absolutely pressure, but it's not, it's not unusual. It's, it's something that, 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 is, that has been around for a long time. But is Tata Martino going to get fired if they lose this game, the fourth loss in an official game to the U.S.? I don't think so, because I think the Federation really has a long-term vision for the first time in a long time. Like Martino would have lost his job under previous administrations, I think, after, you know, if not the first loss in a final to the U.S., the second one. But it's a different era, and, and the vision is more long-term in a lot of ways. And I think that's serving Mexico well, big picture. But you might have some of the growing pains, too. I think fans are frustrated. You know, I think I, I, the love affair with Tata Martino is over. But they might, uh, 
they might call him back. They might be sending him some drunk texts, you know, if things go the right way. So yeah, that, I think that's the status. I think that's where things are. There is pressure. It is demanding, but ultimately the standard or the, the measuring stick is the world cup and those only come every four years. So for, for this window, I mean, it's the last <laughs> window of work of qualifying. Yeah. Um, you, you have not just this game. I, I obviously the Mexico U S game is probably the biggest game on the calendar whenever those two teams play in CONCACAF. But looking at the window, I guess fill in the blank. If the if Mexico qualifies for the World Cup and has a successful window, it'll be because X player s- stepped up. Who is that player to step up? I think, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of star names, and I think they need goal scoring. They haven't been good in front of goal. Raul Jimenez like obviously had a, a sort of like the weirdest injury, serious situation, you know, possible. And he hasn't been the same since the injury. Chucky Lozano has been injured for a lot of the campaign. But I think when you look at this window specifically, and especially the game against the U.S., the player is Edson Alvarez. If Mexico can win a midfield battle or win two midfield battles, they'll be fine. But then that hasn't necessarily happened. Edson's been fantastic. I think he's been one of the best players in CONCACAF in this entire qualification cycle, but he hasn't always gotten help. He's been left stranded sometimes by, by Hector Herrera and Andres Guardado, who are starting to show their age, um, which is a good for Mexico. But both those guys are missing for this game against the U.S. The problem is, who's going to fill in for them? I, I don't know. And so Alvarez needs to have a superb game. You know, He needs to have a 9 out of 10 player rating for them to to boss even a U.S. midfield without Weston McKinney, I think. So um, we'll see. We'll see what Berhalter does. I know that people are saying maybe he he rests everyone and and focuses on Panama, but I think there's a real opportunity there in the midfield for the U.S., even, even without McKinney. So uh, I think it's Edson Alvarez. I think he's the key man. He gives you uh, calmness in the midfield. He can start attacks, uh, but he's so good at, at destroying the play and then getting his head up and distributing. Um, it's quite a it's quite a change and quite an evolution from a guy who was crying after the third group match of the World Cup in 2018 because he committed an own goal, had a terrible game in that game against Sweden and Mexico, um, botched and, and barely made the knockout rounds because of. Now, it's a totally different story. Confident, cool, collected, uh, and capable. So... I think it's him, you know, they, they need somebody to score. They need to, to, to finish their chances, but they also need to not be vulnerable in the midfield and, and have some of their center backs protected too, because you can get a little iffy there. So I, I think he's the key man. All right. Well, appreciate you taking the time, obviously a big game coming up on Thursday night at the Azteca. Um, you've been to the Azteca before. Any recommendations for Mexico city? Ooh, I mean, that's like saying any recommendations for New York. Um, <laughs> if they're early to the game, for sure. But it, I hope people explore. You know, I think it's very easy to to just stay in the hotel and take an Uber to the stadium. And I, I think most people who have that like traveling spirit are probably going to be able to get out and about. I haven't been to Mexico City since uh, since COVID nineteen became a factor. But uh, eat street food, man. I mean, I know I know people. Some people get worried about that, but you're going to have a great experience. Um, tweet at me at Arnold Coma John. Tell me what neighborhood you're in. Tell me what neighborhood you're in. I'll get you a taco recommendation. Tell me what neighborhood you're in. People ask me for again, like it's like it's like saying like, hey, where's I in New York City? It's like well, I don't know, man. If you're in Long Island, I'm not gonna send you a man. You know, okay. So send me yeah. your neighborhood. 
I'll send you some tacos. But uh, yeah, like eat the street food, explore the culture, obviously be respectful. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not your dad. I'm not trying to lecture people, but I, I think it'll be a good trip. And I hope people get out and enjoy and experience the culture because, uh, because it's awesome. It's a really, really cool place. Um, I'm fascinated. I've, I've never done a Mexico-US at the Aztec. I've done three or four different qualifiers before in the previous cycle, um, but I've never been. And obviously the, the capacity, uh, reduced capacity is a big factor for this one as well. So I think it'll be fascinating. I think it'll still be extremely pro-Mexico and extremely difficult environment. The, uh, <laughs> the altitude hasn't changed any. They haven't lowered Mexico City. So that'll still be a factor. Mexico, I heard Mexico City sinking a little bit. So <laughs> it is. It I don't lower. think. I don't think big enough to make as much of a, of a, of a difference <laughs> as maybe the U S national team would like, but, uh, not to be honest, I can't wait. Like I said, I mean, I've never done one of these. Um, it's still on the bucket list for me. So I'm, I'm extremely excited and honestly humbled. I'm, I'm traveling because of my newsletter, um, which is just like people supporting my work. And it's, uh, not truly like it's, a it's, it is humbling. It's like, Oh man, like people want me to do this. And when a media company sends you there, they are saying that people want you to do this, but it's, it's just a different feel. So I, I have some pride in like sending myself and having this, this CONCACAF project that I started two years ago kind of be validated by enough people who say, hey, I, I, I care about this enough to support this with my, with my dollars that I know are, are well-earned and hard-earned by people. So um, I'm just rambling on a personal note now, but uh, yeah, I'm excited <laughs> no, and great. I will send you taco recommendations if you send me. Your neighborhood. 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 We got it. Neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. Hey, and, and some bars just... or whatever people are into. Try pulque as well. The Mexico kind of like traditional alcoholic drink. It's low alcohol. So you you won't you won't be stumbling after one or two. It's like a weird texture. You might not like it, but uh, if you can find a yeah, place, there's like I, a I've modern for it's <laughs> There's, like a, there's, there's a bunch of places there's a bunch of places but there's like kind of a modern like i guess i would say hipster pulqueria called uh, uh insurgentes right by the big um i'm trying to think about it like express it my, my mind just goes to spanish when i go to mexico city the big like circle train station right there pulqueria insurgentes you have google maps you can find it it's like kind of a modern spot a bit of a party vibe so check it out what's the AO, is AO doing like some some party stuff or yeah, so uh, American I'll also be at Pinche Gringo's Barbecue Warehouse yeah. uh, for the night before. And then uh, we have a, a special pregame. Uh, I actually don't know where it is, but it's you know basically a private uh, private establishment where... I'm not trying to sneak in, bro. Yeah, definitely invited. Come out to Pinche Gringo. Uh, but uh, you were mentioning the great work that you were doing. Before we get you out of here, tell the people where they can find you and the fabulous work that you're doing for uh, the Get Conca Caft and also at Striker as well. Yeah, I work with the Striker Texas covering FC Dallas, covering uh, Texas soccer. Um, it's a subscription site that we launched uh, a year ago trying to kind of cover Texas soccer like soccer gets covered in Mexico or Argentina or Germany or whatever, kind of uh, the, the marker or lay to for the U.S. Um, and then getting CONCACAF, as I mentioned, my own personal project where I just tell stories from around the region, analysis, heavy, honestly, into the analysis when it's big games like this, World Cup qualification, and when it's not, I just try and look for stories that I think need to be told from the region or just that kind of interest me. Um, you can check out the work at getconcacaft.substack.com. Uh, Google get concacaft, it'll pop up. Or on Twitter, at Arnold, comma, John. Spell out comma, no H in John. Just like, I think I probably made this joke last time, but it's it's so concacaf because everything is just a little more complicated than it needs to be. But uh, yep. if, you, if you look, I'm sure you can find it. And I'd love to have you there as a subscriber. It's 50 bucks for the year, less than a dollar an issue. That's for the premium edition, 
plenty of great stuff on the free list. And again, I totally understand if that's where you need to be. But uh, if you pay for it, I can keep affording to send myself to Mexico City, to Costa Rica to tell these stories uh, and to get back, which is critical. Um, uh, still pension <laughs> pennies for the flight, but no, I'm just kidding. I got everything booked. I'm looking forward to it. And uh, and yeah, I'll look forward to chatting with some of the World CONCACAF listeners over on, uh, on the newsletter as well. Yeah, no, worth every penny. Big fan of all your work. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join us. And um, yeah, we'll see you down in Mexico City, won't we? Oof. We will. I can't wait, guys. See you down there. Take care. All right. Thanks, John. All right. We really enjoyed that interview with uh, John Arnold. Uh, really appreciate him coming by the show. Um, we've got one major thing left to do on this episode, and it is real team or fake team. And Donald, you're up to bat. Are you feeling good about it? I just got to get two. That's all I got to do because last episode, somebody, somebody got one. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that. That's that's in the past. <laughs> oh, whoa, 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 whoa! Eric got one. I know I what, wasn't here one? for the last. You weren't there. Did you not listen to the episode? Come on. I was. I was busy. Oh my god. We expect go back and, li- We want people listening go back to this and podcast, to and the host can't even listen to it. Jeez. Hey, hey. Everybody, there's a reminder. Go back to the last episode. It's an all-timer for the real team, fake team. Just, just yeah. yeah all you, listen, just listen to like the first half of the episode. That's all you really need. Get that play <laughs> count up, and you can fast. I, I'm going to shut up now for fear of also getting a one. Right. So I'm just going to. Yeah. Don't worry. It comes back around. It comes back around, mm-hmm. Donald. Um, so if you don't know, Jonathan and I have six teams. We're going to alternate. These are potentially real soccer teams. In Mexico, and Donald's got to tell us if these teams are real or fake. Um, Jonathan, do you want to lead off here? Yeah, I'll go. I'll go first. Atletico Baja. Atletico Baja. Correct. I know there's an Atletico San Luis, who is part of that stupid team. So I'm gonna go fake. I'm going to go fake. You are wrong. So Atletico Baja is a professional indoor soccer team um, that plays in the Southwestern indoor Division. Indoor soccer? Come on, um, man. <laughs> of, hey, they play in the MASL, man. Basically, okay, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, they, they play in that's... the MASL. So like, I'll not, allow it. I'm not picking like obscure <laughs> um, you know, fourth division teams. Listen, it's a real team. It's a real team. That's it's all true. We need to You're know. fair. Yeah. I, that's cool. I'm one. good. It's over <laughs> one. All right. Club de football color. That's fake. Color is a real team. They play in Liga Premier. They're based wow. on Clava. Uh, the club was founded in 2001. Uh, it was founded under the name El Calor de San Pedro but is now commonly known as Calor. Interesting. Okay. The heat or the hot. So coming up next, uh, we have Inter Playa del Carmen. Inter Playa del Carmen. See, all these sound real (laughs) and they all sound fake. I'm going to just go fake. Keep the fake thing going. That is a real team. 
So enter <laughs> Club de Football Inter Playa del Carmen. See, I said to shed shit. Is a football club that plays in Liga Premier. Um, they, of course, are based in Playa del Carmen um, in Quintana Roo. I knew Playa del Carmen had a team, too, and I, I was trying to remember what the name of it was, but I, they must have two because that was not the name I was thinking of. Their, their chief rival is um, Pioneros de Cancun. Um, That's what I was thinking of. And yeah. their, uh, their logos, their logos dope. Yes. Yes, it is. So 0 for 3? Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, so just said anything. Yeah. The color is on, you know. The heat's on. <laughs> All right. I'm wiping my brow for those of you, those of you in the audience who can't see. <laughs> yeah, you gotta describe this as a podcast. Yeah. All right. CD Suidad de San Luis. That's fake. That is a fake team. That's St. Louis. Because I knew City Atletico. FC. That's St. Louis City FC in Spanish. Yeah, but Atletico San Luis is a real team. They're owned by two that teams. Team. Yeah, no, they, they can't because they're dumb. They can only have one. That's their punishment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Damn it. All right. So Donald's one for four. All right. So my final team, Jalisco Terremeto. Say that again. Jalisco Terremeto. Jalisco Terremeto. So like Jalisco earthquakes. Correct. This sounds fake, but I'm gonna go real. It is a fake team. Gosh, should have stay with my shit. <laughs> just stay with my shit. <laughs> all right. Hey, remember when I was talking shit about the one for six? Just just delete just all that. Just just just, just add all that out. <laughs> I said it comes back around. Yeah, I mean, y'all digging a bottle, right. scraping a bottle of a barrel. What what league are they? Oh, that was fake. So never mind. Yeah, I yeah just what, what, what league are they? Give them All right. They're in the fake league. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Last one. H2O Parapetches FC. H2O what? Parapetches FC. Parapetches? H2O Parapetches FC? Yep. Um, I'm a. I'm going fake. That is a real team. How H2O? What does H2O stand for? The club has its origins in Club Deportivo H2O, which is an amateur team managed by the Morelia Water and Sewage Management Body. Wow. <laughs> That so is this, the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> so this club plays in Liga TDP. They are in the fourth tier, and it was founded See, on dig. July 25th, 2021. So it's like brand Get new. Get the fuck out of here. You put the team that's like, does it does diapers. That's not even a year old. I didn't I didn't realize. That's Eric, not you, what? How has a real team. Know that? They play in. That's a real team. But I do want to know. It was so fake six H- months ago. So H2O is like the water and sewage management. Like that's that. Perpetuous is actually like the name of the indigenous people of the yes, area. I knew that part. So it's yeah. like, it's almost like the, like the teams in the U S that are called the Indians. Like it's kind of, kind of messed up. So I don't, I don't like it, 
but but you used it anyway i used used it anyway anyway. so donald's (laughs) sitting on a one of six hey remember when i said yo hey eric one of six we're we're in a family we're family now we're the club do i get like a prize or something like another point nope nope (laughs) listen there's only one rule in life and it's talk shit get hit you know yeah i did i mean (laughs) but here's the thing i can still talk shit to you you just can talk it right back so yeah no one can talk shit at me because i've gotten five of six and one so unless until one of you can hit those heights um i'm gonna talk all of the shit your time is gonna come john your time yeah we're gonna get you for one now yeah you yeah you you didn't say you sealed it now (laughs) and the time has also come to wrap this thing up um thank you to john arnold for coming on make sure you subscribe to his getting concacaf newsletter that's um you've you follow him on the twitter it's at arnold comma c-o-m-m-a john j-o-n uh really appreciate him taking the time and coming back on the show especially before this big game big week a lot of stuff going on uh donald where can people find you at blazydw on instagram or twitter or you can find me in mexico <laughs> this week yeah <laughs> find me there and then you can find me at jslape ssp on twitter um and then also at broadway sports media and speedway soccer yep and if you're not already following us at podcast on all the social medias your twitter your facebook uh your linkedin we'll probably get a link linkedin going um but most importantly subscribe to our patreon patreon.com slash we've got various tiers you can just donate a dollar a month to support what we're doing uh for five dollars a month you can get all this bonus content have interact with us have some say in what we talk about on the show and you also get our one more round podcast special bonus thing that will be posted on there right now you sign up you get automatic access and once in a while i write stuff so you also get that too Uh, So thanks for listening and we'll see you out there.